Hey everybody, welcome back to the Command Cinema Podcast. I'm your host, Malachi. Um, uh, my name is Drew. And I'm Cody. And today we're going to be talking about The Godfather Part 2. Coming up from our second episode in our nice little Godfather trilogy. Yay! You! You! <laughs> you! So we I wanted to say yay and woo and it came out as you woo. <laughs> I like you woo. Yeah, so you will you will to part two. I'd like to apologize for the first episode because it. I think we can all agree that it lacked substance as far as reviewing it. It was more or less, you know, sporadic. But I think either way, it's still a conversation. So in that sense, I love that we still did it. I just wanted to put that out in the world. That it was it was very stream of consciousness. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. was not structured, but and we were rusty. We're coming back off a nice little rusty. a nice little part one of Command Cinema, leading seven years after into part two of Command Cinema. It's a nice little break. Yeah, yeah. So okay, can I can I call dibs on doing the plot synopsis? Yes, Absolutely. please do it. Okay, do it. Okay. So I <laughs> we'll get into the actual plot later, but like when I first watched this, I was super confused. So after I got done, I read this really long wiki on the movie and what it was about. And in my own words, I wrote a long plot synopsis that hopefully makes sense. Oh, so so you're a pro now. (laughs) No, (laughs) it's still confusing. But I, I think I've got a handle on what actually happened. So in 1958, we follow Michael Corleone for about three-fourths of the movie, which is three and a half hours long. And his story is about um, him taking over the Empire after Vito dies in the first movie. And through this, he gets deeper into the corruption of being the head of a crime family, and he drives away everyone important to him and everything that his father stood for, which brings us to 1901, where we kind of have Vito's origins and his upbringing and what brought him into the kind of life of crime that is portrayed in part one. And we follow like his whole rise to power and the creation of the Corleone crime family. And I'm not getting into all the subplots with Roth and the Rosado brothers and all that stuff. That's just a very vague, like I like a high level review. Of what happens. Yeah, yeah. So, like, instead of jumping straight into the plot, um, do y'all want to just try to pick apart this behemoth of a movie? Where do we start? Cody, these are your movies, so I feel like every time we start talking about (laughs) this movie, you just got to lead off. Well, I, uh, once again, will not do it justice. But, like I said, in the previous episode i won't go into my host bill right now but i'll just say this one and two i can speak for three mind you i haven't seen it so one and two are uh, one movie for me i view them as as one collection or one one thought out process here so to say one or two is better for me would be saying you like one half of the movie better than the second one and in a sense, you can enjoy the first one by itself, and you can enjoy the second one by itself. And, and one of the rare moments where you can enjoy a sequel and almost even, or may even better, or excuse me, more than the original. So in that sense, I love them. I can't get enough of it. I, and I, I'm not going to, I'm not just saying that because the hype of the film, it genuinely is a good film and holds good structure, regardless of how beautiful it looks and how pretentious it may be um i just love the characters i love dialogue everything about it everything the hype everything with hype it deserves it i hold i hold that 100 percent. i mean yeah i i agree like because it, it really is I, after watching it i get what you mean when you say that you mixed up some parts of part two with part one because they really do feel like it feels like you need both of them to get the, the kind of full, you know, upward slope of Vito and like the downward slope of Michael. And, you know, it's most of the same crew coming on for part two just because they were they were made so close together. 
Um, Gordon Willis did the the cinematography for both of them. Um, they've got I forget what the his last name's Coppola. It's it's not the director. It's the the guy that composed the soundtrack. He he returns from the first one. It's got a lot of the same cast except for you know the people that died in the first movie. But it really does feel like the the second part of a bigger story. And uh, I I totally get where you're coming from with that. Yeah, but to, to add on to that thought, I just that last that final shot in the movie in part two. How meaningful is that conversation between the family? I mean, it's little, very little dialogue, right? It's just a conversation, you know, between uh, Michael telling the family that he's jumping out of college and he's going to join the military. But just in sense of the dialogue in between the families and how aggressive um, the brothers are towards Michael's choice and things like that. But how meaningful is that last shot besides um, the, the pull away from Michael's face um, to the movie with part one and two? And that's why I guess I'm so dead set I'm not watching part three because I like I don't need an I don't need another ending that for me is so so poetic. It's, yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. It just the fact that Michael is the only one that doesn't leave the table is just perfect like i i love that so we can start off with i i mentioned the cinematography a little bit and i kind of i i was curious about it because uh i i didn't really research the cinematography for the first movie and the two movies are kind of similar i think the second one is like <laughs> i i don't know if it totally makes sense but it feels somehow like brighter and a little dark <laughs> which is kind of like a backwards statement but it, some of the scenes in cuba are very like bright and colorful and then we get to some of Vito's scenes which kind of like recall the the darkness of the first movie because part one is like dark like really really dark and a lot of that is kind of uh like replicated in the the flashback sequences with with uh Vito. Yeah, so Gordon Willis, the cinematographer for part two, also did part one and part three. So I'm curious to see what he does with that. And then he was Woody Allen's cinematographer for almost the entire duration of the 70s and like a little bit in the 80s, too. And uh, his nickname is actually the Prince of Darkness (laughs) because of how dark some of his shots were. I can only imagine. There's so many scenes in part two where they're like, They'll be like really close to the camera and you can very easily see their face and they'll take a handful of steps in the other direction. And it's like a damn near silhouette every time. And I thought that was so strange. Yeah. It's cool though. Like it's a lot of uh, like natural lighting used. And I, I read in this article that with part two, I, some, some of it happens in part one, but with part two, a lot of it was shot on location and a lot of it used the very like very very minimal lighting but they they kind of use it to its advantage because it's like it's a really good looking movie but uh it it uses that natural light and creates something pretty neat i think you can definitely see that it's a warm movie like especially yeah. whenever you're in um whenever they go to cuba and whenever they go to sicily like all the scenes are like very warm very yellow Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's in strong contrast with like the very dark nature that is like New York City. And I, I love the contrast of Michael's being more, I don't know if I'd say like realistic, but it with, with Vito's flashbacks, it kind of looks like you're, you're viewing it through like a kind of an orange. It, it's more of like a, a sepia kind of flavor, but it, it distinguishes the two really nice. And it's, the film switches up 11 times between flashbacks and present day. So it's a, it's a good way to kind of keep the viewer on edge and give them some, some good shots to look at. I think that's a, a good point to talk about as far as when Michael retreats or goes AWOL after killing uh, the, those individuals. But you feel as though he's, he, he's running away from what he knows or what he's told to do. 
and it's almost like a dream like uh, state like he gets there and then he meets his new wife to be and you know everything's great up until that point where she is blown to bits but that's you know it's almost like a fantasy land when he arrives up with all these people and then you know enjoys the luxury of not having to worry about family politics you know just being a person not being michael corleone anymore i mean it's still his influence of his family follows him that's why he's there that's his he was able to escape because of the pools families able to make but in a sense that he's becoming a new person in a sense when he goes to cuba yeah yeah definitely cuba is very very bright and kind of saturated there's there's a lot to look at i really really like the cuba scenes the, they're a little hard to follow because i i really wasn't a hundred percent sure what was going on but mm-hmm. the cinematography always you know keeps you on your toes and gives you something interesting to look at one of my favorite things about this movie is the way both of these movies they utilize crowds I've never seen movies utilize crowds so well and they like they make the scenes feel so lively like for instance the wedding in the very first movie a lot of that from what I read it was unscripted they just let the people run around and like have an authentic party and they just filmed it and I would imagine it's probably a very similar scene for New York I mean not for New York for New Year's Eve there's a bunch of people dancing around confetti flying everywhere it's just a really powerful scene and I'm a big fan of the way that they utilize crowds. Touching on the wedding scene, so I really like the contrast between the the wedding scene of the first movie where it's very like, you know, Italian oriented and everyone's really having a, a good time. In part two, where it's kind of clear that Michael is selling out a little bit and it's in Lake Tahoe and <laughs> they like mispronounce his son's name and no one knows how to play any italian songs it's like a perfect don't they end up playing pop goes the weasel <laughs> yeah instead of the first song uh of the song from the first movie they play like they start into the first song and then it like morphs into pop goes the weasel it's i i love it it's a it's a really good little contrast well okay i, I have one more thing i want to touch on with the cinematography before we move on but there was one scene that really stuck with me um like shot wise it's uh it's during one of Vito's scenes where he's kind of like stalking don Fanucci as they're like going up the stairs and Vito like has the gun and he's like hiding in the doorway you know Fanucci doesn't know he's there and he's like adjusting the light bulb and it has like an orange glow on it and then we cut to like Vito in the corner and then like you can see his body kind of like light up a little bit and then it dims down and then it lights up again. And he just like runs up and kills him with the the pistol like wrapped in the towel and then that catches on fire. It, I just really like the way that scene looks. It's it's very like well lit. It it was because that easily could have been very corny, especially when I was filmed. just like, oh, God, somebody just got shot with you. You know, just to see the blood come out of his well-white suit. And, you know, you felt the, the anger, or not, you know, the revenge he had towards every bullet he fired. Um, and, and the fact that it goes off, like, with the fireworks is perfect. So, and it's like, he, like, breaks down the gun on the roof and, like, drops it in all the chimneys. Like, I, I love that. That was super cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um... So what what are some of y'all's like favorite scenes in this movie? Because there are there there is just so much going on. It's such like a densely like packed in film. What what are some of y'all's favorite favorite moments? I en- uh I enjoyed that scene a whole lot just because like I like the parallel between Tessio in the first movie leaving the gun for Michael in the restaurant. And there was a gun left for Vito in that scene. I was like, ah, nice little touches from the last movie. And I like whenever he shot through the towel and the towel set on fire. And I was just like, what a, I was like, what a beautiful scene. Even though him shooting Don Fanucci looked a little silly because the way he shot him and he was just standing there shaking and then he just fell to the floor. I was like, well, I was like, <laughs> I thought that scene was a little funny. Um, I really enjoyed the scene uh, in the very beginning in Sicily, whenever Michael and his mother are running to that Don, I can't remember his name, Don Chichi, I think. Chichio. Uh, Chichio. And I really like the flowers that are like lining the walkway. It's like really saturated. I thought that was a really beautiful scene too. Hmm. 
as I said, the New Year's Eve scene, I think, is really powerful. I'm a big fan of. And I really like the way the movie opens with, like, a close-up of Michael's face, and it ends the same way. Cody, what are, you, what are your, some of your... The, what are, oh, my God. What are some of your favorite scenes? Um, not to... I, I really enjoy um, this scene between Michael and Fredo. Excuse me. Towards the end, once all, you know... He finds out he's the informant or whatever. And after that, he's acknowledged and he's like, you broke my heart, blah, 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 that conversation. And then after their mother dies, um, they're sitting in the in front of the lake in the house and having a conversation. And then Fredo just unleashes. He's like, you understand what you just said? I'm your big brother. And then I like, just goes. I just feel like one of the most powerful scenes you can feel. Like even though Fredo is... A secondary character, you just feel so much angst built up in that one scene because you feel like he'd carry that burden his entire life, especially when Michael took over the family name and carried with the family um, politics. That, that to me is one of the most memorable scenes. And then also to counter that uh, conversation, or not counter, excuse me, to compliment it, um, the scene where Michael has Fred a whack at the end, you know. He brings his son out of the boat, so they're going fishing like they normally do. And so Fredo goes in the water, and then of course he gets shot. But I like how they easily could have just shown it, but they don't. And that to me, that to me was more powerful than actually, you know, seeing blood and guts everywhere, because Michael is watching it. Yeah, the way that gun just like slowly kind of creeps on screen was just like Ugh. <laughs> that far away shot. Usually. You know, something intimate like that, you would have a close-up or a medium shot. But to have that long shot and still be so powerful, that that cut real quick when the bullet is fired, or the gun is fired, excuse me. I don't know. Those are one of my two favorite scenes. I really like, I know it's cruel and, and morbid as it sounds. Like I said, I'm all about revenge, I guess, because when Vito comes back and gets revenge for his father, he goes to stab that man because that man's blind and old. You know, it's been so long since... He doesn't know, even know who he is. He, ne- he says his name, and he doesn't even recognize the name. I thought that was kind of ironic or poetic that he went to just stab him. You could just feel, I know it sounds terrible, but you could just feel all the anger that he had built up and go with every stab. And He truly carved that man like a pumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just want to touch on that scene of, like, Fredo's betrayal or whatever. I just, I felt so bad for Fredo. Fredo was just like such an idiot. John Cazal, like props to him. He played that role perfectly. Mm-hmm. Fredo was just like such a tool. I, f- I felt so much like, I, I don't know if it's like pity, but I, I just, I feel bad that he was passed over so much. And he, he's like saying, you know, he's not stupid, but he like he definitely is stupid. Like he, right. <laughs> he shouldn't have gotten, you know, the Don, like, you know, Michael's position, the whole thing with, um, you know, pretending not to know, uh, Roth and, you know, what, what was it? Johnny, Johnny, Ola? Johnny Ola, yeah. 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 I, I just, I don't know. I just, I wanted Fredo to, as soon as he said that, <laughs> I was just like, he, he fucked up. He really did. Like whenever he yeah. slipped up and you just see Michael, like, like just dart his eyes at him. I was like, "Oh, whoops!" Yeah. And that man yeah. is like feeling no remorse. Like he has no care for what he just said. And I was like, "Whoops! All right." Yeah, yeah, that was it. That was it for Fredo. And then, like, as soon as <laughs> him and Fredo kind of like hug at the table, and he makes eyes at his hitman or his bodyguard. I don't, I don't know who that guy is exactly. You you just know you know it's over for Fredo like that that's it. That's the one thing about this movie. I feel like every time anybody has like a close interaction, I'm like I'm just waiting for somebody to die every time. Like I thought for sure that like Michael was gonna go full crazy and just like stab Fredo in the like in the back whenever they were hugging. I was like I would not be surprised because every time I feel like it's a really nice somber moment. Something breaks out and something crazy happens. Michael's such like a villain in this like it's such a like you kind of sympathize with him in the first movie a little bit but he's like evil in this movie 
He definitely makes the turn because, I mean, he comes home in the first one like a war hero. Like he had just gotten back from doing what he had wanted to do. He met Kay. He seemed happy. Like they go out Christmas shopping and all that. You're like, wow, it's like Michael seems like such an upstanding character. I was like, he doesn't want to be a part of his family's business. I was like, everybody else seems to just be okay with that. And then this movie, a full 180 on his character. Which is, it's great. Watching these in close succession like this has like, Michael looks so like meek in the first movie. And then at the end of this, he's like a psychopath. Like he, he is unhinged, which makes it like all the more entertaining to watch. Like I touched on before, this movie is massive. The 200 minute runtime where it swaps between characters a lot. There's a lot of different characters to keep track of. Most of the characters kind of look the same. (laughs) (laughs) Sweaty, middle-aged white men. And it's just, it's a little confusing. So I guess we can go ahead and get to the part of the podcast where we kind of talk about what we thought of the movie. Mm -hmm. Because I know this was me and Malachi's first viewing. Cody, I know you've seen it like 10 times. Cody, what what do you think of Godfather 2? I hold it up highly. Like I said, it's my favorite out of the three, if I haven't mentioned that. It's a favorite out of the two that I've seen, being one and two. But like I said earlier, you can't watch one and two without appreciating the other one. You can't watch one or the other without appreciating in that sense that which that's for most movies I get it but like for instance you can watch later Blade Runner 2049 and enjoy it as a movie but and also with these movies but I feel to get the full experience uh, of The Godfather you have to take them from for what they are as both films like Kill Bill as well one and two they are they're great in themselves but they complement each other more so when they are viewed as one film it helps that case because they came out in such close succession and the Blade Runner movies came out, I think, 30 years apart. <laughs> so they can be like standalone movies. But these two really are two parts of a, a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went years without seeing part two. I, I only saw it a couple days ago. And I really don't think I, you know, respected the, the Godfather franchise as much. You know, I, I showed it as like a, a film lover until seeing part two part two really kind of like solidified everything after let me just clarify after i read what happened (laughs) (laughs) movie was over and i read what happened it made sense but i'll stop talking for a second malachi what do you think of part two first impressions i like it and i think it's one of those movies that's like an important piece of film and i feel like you're not I feel like it's kind of hard to give your opinion on film without having like seen both of them. But like, I want to say that I like it a lot, but having not read in fine detail, the wiki page after watching it, I'm still a little shaky on the details. Like I was kind of confused about how they got to, I don't think it's a court case. I can't remember exactly what the terminology is for that scene, but I was very confused on how they got there. And I didn't really understand why they had Frankie five angels brother in the courtroom. That part I didn't understand, but I mean, overall, I think it's like a great continuation of the Godfather part one. I'm not 100% sure that I could say I loved it. I think if I like watched it again, like with the ending in mind, knowing what I know now, being able to pay like finer attention to the little details to understand more of the story. I feel like I'd probably like it a little bit more. You know, like cliche that you once, after reading a book more than once, you, you pick up on things or you watch mm-hmm. a movie. That, in a sense, is a perfect example. There, the first being you're having to take in so much information. And like what, what we were talking about earlier, there's so much politics involved and, and a lot of stuff that is important but doesn't seem important. So upon the first viewing, you're like, oh, my God, that was a lot, especially three hours of film. If you break it down after second viewing, third viewing, whatever, then you learn to appreciate it more. I think once you view it the first time, it is a lot to take in because three hours of film, you're having to, to pretty much take in all the politics, 
all the conversations between the families, all the feud, and then also, you know, things from the first film. So it's, there's so much. And so in the sense of trying to understand a film, that film, one viewing would be kind of ridiculous. So upon second viewing, third viewing, you've learned to appreciate it because you're not looking at the grand scheme of things. You're looking at, okay, what is Fredo doing in this scene? What is he, how is he reacting when there were all the businessmen are there in Vegas, you know? Gotcha. It makes sense. I'll have to give it another watch for sure. Drew, what do you think? I'll be honest. Um, after finishing the movie last night at around one in the morning, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like it pretty much like at all. Um, I liked, I liked it visually. Um, I liked the dialogue, but I thought the plot was very convoluted and did not hold your hand whatsoever. You know, I, after that, I got to thinking the next day cause it, you know, it was late. I was tired. I just went to bed. So the next day I was thinking, um, the Godfather one didn't really open up to me until I watched it a second time recently. And I also kind of thought, hey, I don't really know what happened in this movie. Um, I got like a couple of the, the big story beats. But other than that, I was pretty lost throughout most of like the three and a half hour runtime. I found a wiki online. I read about it a little bit. And the more I read about it, uh, the more I kind of, I guess, respect it. And I am really interested in rewatching it because... Now that I actually kind of know what happens and I know the characters and I, I read a little bit about why they're doing what they're doing and what is actually going on, because like, like Malachi said, I didn't know by the time the courtroom scene rolled around, I didn't know what was going on at all. I didn't know why Frank's brother was there. I was just super confused and kind of just like irked at the movie. How much longer do I have to go? <laughs> exactly like i i was just i was ready for it to be over with I, I, I was wondering to myself like why is this movie so acclaimed and then it kind of hit me like you know there really is no hand holding you kind of have to like think for yourself and it just it doesn't it just kind of like throws you off in the deep end and lets you just kind of like yeah. marinate in what you just watched which is like a very slow burn gangster drama I, I wish I had time to see it again before we recorded because I am very interested in, in seeing it again. But first impressions, it is a tough watch. Would you say that it just drops you off on Ellis Island, a fresh immigrant with smallpox, and you just have to figure out how to become the Don of the Corleone family? I, yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. That's 100% fair. It's very, <laughs> it's very confusing, and it feels very convoluted. But I, I'm excited to dive back in with the, you know, with the plot actually in mind, and you know, the wiki at hand. <laughs> Cody, I have to ask before we get further into this: What did you think the first time you saw this movie? Was it anywhere similar to that, or did you just immediately click with it and you were like, "Oh, I love this"? No, I did not. I did not. I thought well, this is the most pretentious film ever. Like, why do people claim this to be the you know epitome of all films? It wasn't really until I think I watched it in theaters. Um, so I had the luxury of watching in. Uh, my local, not my local theater, but a theater near around me has Fathom Events teamed up with Turner Classic Movies and they show a classic film every month. This was last year, I think. Yeah. And this, that month happened to be Godfather Part 2, which the year before was, I got to see Godfather Part 1 on screen, but it wasn't until watching Godfather Part 2 on the silver screen to really appreciate it. And what I mean by that, not, not because of all its glory and a huge ass screen, it's because you know, this, the, the experience of watching a movie on uh, a screen versus watching it at home is more intimate because, you know, you're paying for it in a sense, what you do at home, I'm sure. But you're, you're pretty much, you're dedicated to watching this. You kind of feel guilty of pulling it out. You, you know, you're, you're, on, you're dedicated to this film because you're like, hey, I just paid 10 bucks on this. And I'm going to enjoy everything and everything about it. And so for me, after watching it on the big screen, I got to see every grain, every little detail that was put into this movie, every little conversation, because you know I was I was there, I was in a different perspective, and so that in that sense, I think I didn't appreciate it 
that much until I was able to um, watch it in its glory. Um, but not to say that I didn't before. It's just so much more than I, and maybe that I just watched it from the the fifth viewing or whatever have you, um, on that on the screen, versus just watching it the fifth time at home. I probably could have got the a similar experience. I'm just trying to grasp everything in one taking. Like I was uh, complimenting trying what I'm saying earlier. It's it's kind of hard to do. Um, it's almost trying to solve an algebraic equation just first glance, and I don't I don't think you can do it. What my girlfriend and I were talking about, um, just the characters alone. There's uh, so much character development. We were actually talking about, what's her name? Kate. What's her real life name? Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton. God, thank you. I have gone blank. Thank you, Diane Keaton. Um, just in the first film, how she turns out to be this easy girlfriend. Michael's so oblivious to everything that comes with the family. She's asking questions. Weddings, part one. You know, and then she kind of starts to see what it's all about, and then Michael gets more involved. And then she here, here she is being the wife, you know, throughout the whole film, and then not questioning anything. And as she, as things go on, you know, the safety of her and her children are being questioned, which more, not so much in part. It's crazy to feel that sense of almost like the movie is half of Diane Keaton's in the sense that, of course, Michael is the main character predominantly. In both both films, but you you feel like the betrayal, or the you know even the scene. I I can't believe I forgot to mention this scene. But when uh, Diane Keaton tells Michael that it that it wasn't a miscarriage, it was abortion, and and that was heavy, you know, because he he's so caught up in the politics and all of what comes with the business or the family business, and then that scene he kind of comes to reality. Like, hey, listen. So, yeah, and that was the point Destiny made, because we actually watched it together um, on the big screen, and Diane Keaton, what a hell of a performance, honestly. She's one of my favorite characters in, in the whole film, besides Fredo. Yeah, definitely. That that abortion scene is, like, super intense. I, I was kind of, like, nodding out a little bit, because it happens near the end of the movie, and that scene just, like, woke me up. I was like, Jesus Christ, this is super, super intense. <laughs> Right. It, it's just, it's a lot to take in, especially since, uh, you know, it was like, because Michael was asking uh, Tom Hagen earlier on in the movie, you know, was it a boy? And Tom is just kind of like being neutral and saying, you know, it was, uh, it was too early know. to tell. Yeah, it was too early to tell. He didn't know. And then, you know, it just kind of drops a bomb on you that, that scene with Kay and Michael. And it really, that, okay, that was the scene that kind of like, it probably should have happened earlier on in the movie, but that was the scene for me that solidified Michael as like a villain, like a really, really, really like bad guy. And in the in the first movie, you kind of like Don Don Corleone is like he's a bad guy, but you you never really see him do anything bad firsthand. He's kind of just pulling the strings, and he's just this figure in the background. But Michael is on screen doing like these despicable things. He's just an awful person, which is it, you know, again, it plays into the fact that this is like a total 180, like you said, Malachi, from the first movie. And it, it just, it, it adds so many new layers. And it, you know, I, I do think part two, story wise and character development wise, is way more compelling than part one it's harder to get a grasp on it for, I would say, but that that's, that's my two cents. I feel like with this movie, um, like you kind of see how the Godfather part one, it kind of starts to paint Michael being a bad character in very broad strokes. Like it's cause I mean, you see him, he shoots Salazzo and the police captain, and then he ends up in Sicily Meanwhile, he's not responding to any of Kay's messages. Tom Hagen's kind of like on the side of Michael, of just like, eh, we'd just rather not have to deal with that. He ends up marrying the girl in Sicily. She dies in the car bomb. And he kind of just, well, I guess I got to go back home. I've, and like he, he immediately goes to Kay. She's like started her own new life. She's like a school teacher, I think. 
And he's like, hey, I want you back. I need you. We're going to make the business legitimate. And she just goes for it. And was like, oh, he can't be all bad. And I thought that scene was like really confusing in the beginning. After having watched the second one, it's like, oh, he's like, yeah, you can kind of see that Michael's not as like, he's not as sweet as like it was always intended to be. And I feel like with the scene at the very end where he's sitting at the table on Vito's birthday, you're like, oh, yeah, this man's starting to paint himself. Like he's starting to back himself into a corner. And as you were saying with the scene with Tom Hagen, where he is telling Michael that he doesn't know what his child is and how it's too early to tell. You can't really like it's kind of hard to say that if Tom Hagen was like lying about that, like if he did know and he just didn't say anything, because it would be kind of wild for for one. How did she get off the base, the compound without Tom Hagen knowing? I thought that was a really interesting part. If Tom Hagen did know and he lied to Michael, then obviously Michael would have lost all the trust in him that he had. So I think it would have been there's not very many people around him that he can trust. So I think that's kind of why. At the very last scene, you just see him sitting by himself. Like, he doesn't have Fredo around. Connie's, like, probably not going to trust him anymore after... Because I'm sure she wasn't very far whenever Fredo was shot in the back of the head. So I can only imagine that all of that's going to come back to bite Michael in the third movie. Which I'm really interested to see how it all finishes. Because if that's how it was supposed to end, I would have had my questions. I'll throw that on air quotes, because I don't know. If, if it's going to answer every question that I have. I, I definitely feel like it, it paints a picture of Vito as a more genuine person, especially like, you know, that scene of him offering the help the, the lady in his neighborhood out with the rent. Like, I don't think Michael would ever do anything like that. Vito just seems like a more, you know, less like intimidating presence and that, you know, power isn't the only thing that, that matters to him and he he's worried about maybe improving his neighborhood and not Michael is just such like a, a villain, like through and through it. It really just contrasts with the, I, I think the inclusion of, because this was a, a big, you know, point of discussion back in 74 when the movie came out was like, you know, were the veto scenes really necessary? Like, why were they there? And I, I kind of thought about that too, for a little bit. And I, I think it really does. It definitely tacks onto the movie, and I don't know if all the veto scenes are necessary. It makes a nice parallel between you know his his upbringing and Michael's own kind of foray into the the Corleone Empire. So I I, I do think that they're palate cleanser, I guess, and good little origin story for Vito. I think it, I think it just helps the movie serve as a prequel and a sequel. So, I mean, you get you get to like, because I'm sure a lot of people's favorite character in the original Godfather is Vito Corleone. So I, I'd imagine like people are like more interested, like, oh, like, how did he come to power? Where did he come from? Because, I mean, he pretty much loses everybody in his life and he ends up coming out. I would probably say the better for it. Or, I mean, as Michael, he loses everybody in his life kind of by his own choice. Well, at least the last few people that are around him, he didn't lose Vito or Sonny by his own means. I think it kind of, I think, it, I think it paints a good picture for showing that there are like very different types of Dons. And I think that uh, Vito, like he made, he made a really good conscious decision to take care of his family. Because there's a scene where he's like, you see Sonny, Fredo, and Michael, and they're all sitting outside on the porch steps. And you can like very easily see that Vito loved his children, and the same cannot be said for Michael. Even though he was like, you won't take my kids from me, he was doing that because maybe he wanted an heir, maybe he didn't want to see Kay happy if she was going to kill his son. And I think, I ultimately think that scene, it kind of, I don't know, it pushes Michael into being a really ruthless leader. I, I agree. Michael, I, at the end of part two, Michael has burned almost every single bridge that he has and he is like sold out like i i saw online the scene that that like solidified michael's sellout to them was uh him it was the courtroom scene where he he denies any involvement of any like criminal proceedings and then he says he has stock in like ibm and it and t 
which is it, it's him attempting to legitimize the family, but also kind of like selling out in the process. And so, you know, nothing really happens. This movie it has like it has like quite a few loose ends that just make you go, huh? Why did they do that? Like the part about the senator and the girl that was like bleeding in the bed sheets. Like I was like, why? But then like they like they show the senator at the at the meeting. And he like gets up and he speaks very highly about how legitimate the Corleone family business is. And then he ultimately just leaves. And I was like, what did they do? Did they, I mean, do you have an answer for that? (laughs) (laughs) See, that's the thing that like, I, that's why I'm so interested in like hopping back into this movie because I, I feel like there are loose ends, like you said, but I feel like they're, they're thought out. I just didn't, pick up on them. Maybe they're there. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just permanently, you know, they were intended to be loose ends, but I, I'm just, because that part, I didn't even realize that was him because that happened so early on in the movie. I thought he was a character. Like, it, you know, I, I do, I do love a long movie, but this was long, almost to a fault to a first time viewer, I would say just because of how much it throws at you. But I, I think that's what has made these, these movies kind of stand the test of time just because of how, you know, layered and I I'm guessing rewatchable Cody. Can you attest to that? Yes. I feel it's almost like uh, it's a wonderful life. It, ha- it has to be viewed at least once a year, maybe not around the holiday season, but you know, just the, just keeping grasp of it. It's still one of the greatest movies. The Godfather is enjoyable, but I don't know if it's something I could watch within several months of each other. I feel like I have to, to truly enjoy it to watch, you know, at least maybe once a year. Is it something like like every time you, you rewatch it and you kind of pick up on something new, or do you know it by heart at this point? Oh, no, for sure. To say that I knew it by heart would be a ridiculous statement. It, it could be the minute details. It could be something um, that was right in front of me the whole or just like the conversation we just had now about when they were in Sicily and then how there were bright colors, all the greens and all the flowers throughout the, the scenes. And then you go back to New York. There's a lot of darkness and a lot of things I didn't pick up on. They were just visual strictly. It may not even been uh, intentional, but that's those are the things that I love about the film. And back and back, I can find something new to appreciate how carefully it was handled while filming. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm very excited to to jump back into it and try to get a new perspective on what actually happened and figure it out. I mean, I, I guess we'll get into kind of like final verdicts here, but I, I do think it's, it's an extremely well-made movie. I, I can't say in good faith that I, I enjoyed watching it, you know, past the first hour. It was just, it, it's kind of like an endurance test. Once you get through it, it's relieving and you kind of like take in what you just watched. Cause really I mean, I, I finished it a couple of days ago and it has really sat with me and not just because we're doing our series on this, but because it's such an important movie and you hear about it, you, you hear it, like everyone talk about how important it is. I get why these movies are so respected because, you know, I, I've seen I've seen some gangster like, you know, Goodfellas, a couple of other Scorsese movies like, you know, gangster movies are usually not nearly as hard to follow you know, part one and part two, there's, they're so densely packed with information and characters and motivations and backstories, everything that you could possibly think of. That's what makes them stand the test of time. That's why. And, you know, upon release, like part two was considered a kind of a subpar film. Like, you know, people didn't really take to it like they do now. And I I feel like that's kind of where I'm coming from is like, you know, this, this feels like a bloated, you know, pretentious mess, but think, you know, like, like the critics have, I think I'll turn around on it with, with more viewings and more, the more I learn about it, you know, for right now, upon first watch, you know, I, I'm not crazy about it. I definitely think the first movie is, it's a less labor intensive watch and you, you could throw it on and kind of recognize, Oh, that happens then. And it's, it's easier to just kind of like put on and keep up with but two is like an investment it's something you really have to tune into and pay attention which makes me respect it like all the more it, it is a an extremely well-made movie but i think it, it's going to take some time for me to really give it the the respect that it deserves that's what i've got to say 
What do y'all think? That's more than fair. Can't agree. Did you say can or can't? We can. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that came out a little too like, <laughs> loose. He's like, they're going to ask. Drew, what do you think the next movie is going to deal with? <laughs> I haven't read anything about it. Besides a plot point that got spoiled for me, I know nothing about part three, which makes me very excited and nervous to dive into it. I I don't know if it'll be nearly as dense and thought-provoking as part two. From everything I've heard, it is a divisive film, to say the least. You know, some parties are neutral and some are very negative towards part three. Um, I think it's going to focus on, if I had to guess, because I know it came out like 15 years after part two. And I want to say it's about Michael still being the head of the family and deciding what to do with it in his old age. Maybe. Um, I see. I I don't know all the little nuances that are going to happen, but I feel like that's the general story. What do y'all think part three is going to be all about? I have some perception of it. I, I have not seen the trailer from what I can tell. It deals with Anthony being an adult and maybe potentially, Inheriting the family name, Pacino is still heavily involved, of course. I just don't know. I don't know how the relation is there. If it's more Michael's movie or Anthony, you know, that's what I'm wondering at this point. So that that's where my perception. It may not even be close, but I know here's here's to that viewing. Yeah, Malachi, what do you what do you think part three is going to be about? I genuinely have no idea. I imagine that Anthony is going to play a big role. Because if it's set that far after, Anthony will probably be a grown-up by then. Or at least of, like, an age to make a decision for himself and not having his parents rule over him. I imagine Kay will make some appearance trying to, like, keep a positive relationship with her kids. I imagine that the daughter, who I think went unnamed... Wait, I think they say her name at the very end. I think it's, like, Emily or something like that. But she seemed to be like a very small character in that movie. So I'd imagine that she'll probably be a little bit better. I just have the sinking suspicion that they're somehow going to find out what happened to Freddy. And they're going to like retaliate against Michael. Other than that, I really don't know. There's just like a lot going on. Because I mean, a lot of the familiar faces probably won't be around. So I'm interested to see what's going to happen. I know know for a fact that Robert Duvall is not in it, which kind of bums me out. I love how much hair he was missing in part two. It was so thin on top. <laughs> Those two years really took a toll on poor Robert Duvall. <laughs> Do y'all have any, you know, last minute thoughts on the on the film? Um, nothing that I hasn't already been said other than the fact that to anyone who doesn't like this film, I'm not gonna say that I don't understand because I totally understand. There's a lot of things that take in and maybe a bit tad pretentious but i don't think anything is unnecessary i think it could have been said in less words sure. it's, it's with part two no no i've never read the novel i think it can be enjoyed it may be a bear to enjoy somewhat but it is a good film and in itself one and two are great together that's really all i have to say great casting even though it was very risky to do marlon brando in part one, and then very risky to do Michael being, you know, other. I mean, he was I mean, not Michael, excuse me, Al Pacino. Other, like, the only reason that the had a problem was because of his height. But what the hell? I don't know if there could have been any. There would never, never once was like a scene where I'm like, oh God, I don't respect Michael's character of his height. You know, Mike, uh, Al Pacino dominated every role that he was dominant or was meant to be forceful and i i can't say enough about that role and dying role. most of everyone in the film that it deserves everything that's been said nicely about um in the film drew can you give us can you give us a nice parallel between this movie and the godfather video game oh my god um <laughs> do you remember anything about it no uh <laughs> i played the godfather 2 for Xbox 360 when I was like 13, I think, which is, it has been 10 years since I've played that game. Did you think it was interesting then? No, no, it sucked. It was like a, <laughs> it was an awful like GTA clone. It was terrible. I, I remember that you, you played as like a, I, I don't know if anybody from the film 
uh, like reprise their roles. But I, I know you tried to like take over neighborhoods and it was like a third person shooter and it was not good like at all. I only played a couple hours of it before I gave up on it, but it was awful. All right, that's all I wanted to know. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I have to say about Godfather 2 for the, the, the 360. Now I got any final impressions on Godfather. I see why this movie is important, and I think it has like a huge cultural impact on cinema, like following it. Like I think there's a reason why the idea of the mafia is like such a prominent thought in cinema today, so I can for sure see why it's important. And I think given more watches could like only solidify it more as like an important piece of cinema. If I ever just find myself you know, with exactly three hours and 22 minutes to burn, I know just the movie to watch. And I think as far as rating it would go on my first watch alone, hmm, actually, I think I'll keep my rating until the third movie. And that way I can review them all together. <laughs> As a series, as a trilogy. Now, three might weigh it down a little bit. It might, but I mean, if Francis Ford, if Francis Ford Coppola thought that that's what the trilogy needed, I'm gonna go with his artistic opinion, and that's how I'm gonna rate the movie. We'll get into part three next week, like officially. But it it has, you know, like I was t- talking about earlier, like where part two has a lot of the same the same crew. Part three also has a lot of the same people in it. Coppola and Puzo wrote the script. It's the same cinematographer from the other two movies. It's got a lot of the same cast, but it came out so far after part two. They knew the money was still going to come in. I mean, it did. It definitely did. Whether or not it's a good movie, we'll, we will figure it out next week. But I am, I'm a little nervous to jump into it after two. But going in with an open mind, we'll, we'll see what Coppola has in store. And with that, I think that's the end of episode seven. Dun-dun-dun. So I guess I will catch you guys next week with The Godfather Part 3, the last of our trilogy. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dive into it. It's another three hour. <laughs> oh, <God. Okay. laughs> it's the shortest of them. I'm pretty sure this one's like two hours and like 50 minutes. That's not a short movie. <laughs> I said it's shorter than the other by comparison by like 10 minutes, but it's still hey. like a long ass movie. You'll, you'll thank, you'll be thankful for the 10 minutes of shortness after watching two and a half hours. You'll be like, uh, imagine being two, two and a half hours into a movie and be like, Oh, there's still a whole nother hour left. You'll be yeah. thankful. Don't worry. <laughs> We'll see. Maybe maybe this will be my favorite. Who's to say? Wow. What a bold opinion. (laughs) All right, guys. I will see y'all next week for The Godfather Part 3, the final part of our Godfather trilogy. Um, I don't know what we're doing after that, but we will figure it out. All right. We'll see you then. All right, guys. See you next week. See ya. See ya.